David Cameron said it was an act of pure evil. Barack Obama condemned it. The leader of Interpol said it was twisted and depraved. And other European leaders classed it as heinous, terrible and barbaric. Inspiring and equipping you to live the life you're destined to live. This is the Ascend Men podcast. Hi, Mike. Hi, Alan. Mike, if you could have an all-expenses-paid trip to anywhere in the world, where would you go? It would be New Zealand. Ah. I'd love to go to New Zealand. Mm. And just for clarity, Ascend Men doesn't have the budget for that. <laughs> Second question. If there was one decision you could go back and change, what would it be? Ooh, that's a good uh, one decision... I would go back and change. Not to have left the Royal Air Force. Ah, interesting. Well, we'll get to that in my introduction. So, Mike, you and your brother David Haynes were born in Holderness, Yorkshire, four years apart, and like many brothers, you were close. Your parents served with the UK Armed Forces, so your family regularly moved around. And with all of that change, your relationship with brother David was one of very few constants. And so you weren't just close, you were best friends. You both joined the RAF, but your careers took different paths. As you said, you left and you ended up working as a mental health nurse. David left after 12 years to work for the UN and then various other aid agencies in the world's worst trouble spots, including Libya and South Sudan. Whilst working for a French aid agency in Syria, on the 12th of March, 2013, Your brother David was taken hostage by ISIS, and 18 months later, he was brutally beheaded on camera to punish the West for their support of the anti-ISIS Kurdish forces. Tell me about that dreadful day on the 13th of September, 2014. Just before, just a few days before the 13th of September, I had moved most of my family to my home, uh, we are lucky we have a large home, but we had people sleeping on the floor, on the couch, all over the place. Mm. And the 13th of September was a truly beautiful day. Uh, we'd filled it full of family love and hope that my brother would come home safe. There had been a massive outcry when David appeared in the background of Stephen Sotloff's murder on the 2nd of September. And there had over a thousand imams around the world had signed a letter calling for the release of my brother. So we had hope. Mm. Well, we'd filled the day for the family love Mm. and just togetherness, supporting one another. And we'd all gone to our beds. Uh, I'm sat on the side of my bed undressing hmm. and my phone began to ring. It was three minutes past 11 at night and there was a blackness inside of me because I knew it was the call that I'd been dreading since day one. Hmm. On the end of the phone was my team leader in London telling me that David was no longer with us. Hmm. 
I was the biggest coward in the world. If I could have run away from telling my family, I would have done. But I couldn't let it be a stranger that told them. So I gathered my family together. I took my mum's hands and told her her son could no longer be hurt anymore. I was so full of anger, so full of hatred, not towards a culture, not towards a faith, but those who'd taken my brother's life. The feelings were stronger than I have ever felt before. And as you said, you know, as devastating as it was, that news wasn't unexpected. The the video of Stephen Sotloff's execution had your brother David in the background and there was a threat in that yeah. video. So in some respects, you knew despite your best efforts and, and those of others in the world, it was only a matter of time. How did you cope for all those months? It had always been planned that I would be the liaison between family and the authorities in case something happened to David. So when he started doing humanitarian work, the he used to come round to my house with a bottle, uh-huh. bottle of brandy or a bottle of whiskey, and we would... As the level went down in the brandy, <laughs> the scenarios that we talked about just got more and more outlandish. So we talked about everything, mm. including kidnap, including being eaten by wild animals, <laughs> you know, and, and silly things. But it, it was all... It wasn't planned... But what we were doing were talking about the what-if cases. Mm-hmm. He had let me know uh, that he was what he wanted to happen. Mm-hmm. So we talked about ransom. We talked about kidnap. We talked about murder. We talked about all sorts of different things. So during those that 18 months, I was the liaison between the government various agencies, the NGOs that were working to get David out and my family. And that gave me a job to do. And that job gave me a suit Mm. of armour. So I used to put that suit of armour on so I didn't feel... I did feel, but I, I, I was protected because I was doing a job. Um... 18 months from my parents for my family was truly difficult because not all my family knew that David had been taken. We had an information circle, that's what I called it, my information circle of 13 Mm -hmm. people. 13 people who would know that 
David, something had gone wrong and would start asking questions. So I had those 13 people were in my information circle and I disseminated the the information that I got from the government, from the team, the multi-discipline mm. team that I worked with to get him out. Uh, I passed that information down onto the family. So as I said, I had a role and that role, I think without that role, I would have tried to have gone to Syria to get mm. him out of trouble. Yeah. I think in... in one of your writings, you you mentioned that the during those eighteen months, that was a time filled with prayer, hope, despair, and endless worry, mm. which are kind of like opposites. You know, you've got hope and yet despair. You're praying and yet you have endless worry. Yes. Um, and what a roller coaster that must have been. Yeah. I first got to know you or heard your story on Radio 4's Lent talks in March this year, and the series took six different people's reflections on Jesus's ministry teaching and passion from a deeply personal perspective, focusing on words from the Lord's Prayer. And, and the phrase that your story was attached to was forgive as we forgive. So, so please, um, what does that mean to you? It took my, my initial feelings. I, I, I was so full of anger, so full of hatred that... If somebody had flicked a switch and had put those responsible at my feet, unarmed, I would have put a pistol to the head. I would have murdered them myself. Mm -hmm. And like we were forces, you know, both David and I were Royal Air Force. You lived by rules, mm. and one of those rules is you don't murder an unarmed people. Um, but I would have done. So I started to question mm -hmm. why ISIS had murdered my brother. Was it because he was Christian? No. Was it because he was white? Um, white? No. Was it because he was a humanitarian worker? No. And then it hit me that his murder was about the spread of hatred, that they wanted me to hate and I was faced with a choice. Did I act in hate and stand up and point a finger at Islam and say, your faith is to blame for my brother's death? You know, did I just spread that hate? Which if I had done, and is a perfectly normal response, if I had have done, I would have been doing that the job of the terrorists for them. You know, and that mm. is something I realized that I had to do something. Mm. That 18th month was a journey up and down. You get a tiny bit of information. Um, and the, the government were superb they mm. their dedication to getting my brother home was steadfast i once met uh david cameron in the then MP, uh, pm in the corridors of the fco 
uh, the Commonwealth Office, and um, I said to him, I said, look, sir, I don't like your politics, but thank you for doing everything that you're doing to get my brother home, because he was yeah. personally determined to do everything that he could. However, mm. I knew that the chances of getting David home were not high. And that that journey through those 18 months and then to his murder. Mm. And then I, to me, I often get asked about hatred and about forgiveness. And I always say it's mm. a long road with hate at one end and peace of heart at the other. And where I was on that road, I didn't know. And then two of the ISIS members who were involved in the capture, the torture and murder of my brother were captured in Iraq. They were um, transferred to the United States where they were going to face trial. Um, this was only May last year. And mm. I realized that I still had residual hate for them. Mm. So I went to the US, I went to the court, I stared them in their faces, and I said, I forgive you. And that, mm. it really was an amazing moment because I didn't realize that even that little bit of hate that I still had left was weighing me down. And then mm. when I said, I forgive you, that weight left me. I had mm. freed myself and I had freed my organization, Global Acts of Unity, from that residual hate. And it really was mm. a shut-the-door moment. The two went down for life, and mm -hmm. I have carried on. Global Acts of Unity has carried on with a new spring in our step. You talk about the road at one end, uh, hatred, and the other end, forgiveness. And from what you just said there, you, you'd made steps down that road towards forgiveness, but there was still that kind of final step. And have you ever felt yourself straying back down the road? Do things resurface, the emotions and the anger and the hatred in you? But very much so, very much so. That road has, has not been smooth whatsoever. Um, so I, I had set up Global Acts of Unity in response to my brother's mother. Uh, through Global Acts of Unity, mm. I go into schools and I speak about uh, what happened to my family. I speak about the rejection of hatred, the understanding that we all feel hatred. Hatred is a natural emotion. But speaking on hate, acting on hate is a choice and that we have the power mm. not to choose hate. 
I have many, many times felt so much anger in those years since my brother was murdered. And there's times when I've ranted and raged and I've sobbed tears, mm -hmm. you know, questioned myself over so many things. But I can, one thing I can always say is I have never chosen to speak or act in hate. And that is, that's basically the essence of what Global Acts of Unity does in schools. And and it sounds like it's that power over you that you're you're talking about. Outside that federal court in Virginia, the US last year, you read a statement. Mm. Um, and, and that statement went, uh, terrorism has claimed many lives, but I will not let it claim my soul as well. Yes. Yeah. Today, for the first time, I can choose to say to those men, you no longer have power over me and Mike. I forgive you. And and so I can hear your heart in that statement. You know, it's the power of mm -hmm. hatred that that you're looking to dispel and yes. disarm. Yeah. And it, it was more about me and mine because that decision didn't come lightly. Um, I had raised when the two had been transferred to the US and we knew that it was going to be a court case. I started discussing with my immediate family, with my wife, with my boys, with my godparents. Uh, I had thought about the act of forgiveness. Mm. But it couldn't just be my decision. Mm. So my immediate family backed everything that I, I said and understood the reasons why. But it, it, even then, the, from when they were captured to the point where I stood up in the court, that was still a very bumpy road. You know? And now one of the things I can say is since that day, I still feel anger at times. I... This time, you know, but I don't hate. I, I, and that has freed me in many respects. I still have to live with the horror of my brother, the questions in my head in those deep, dark nights when sleep won't come, and I see my brother's face. Those questions still come did I do everything I could to get him out? And I know in my heart that I did, but sometimes in my head, it's a different matter. But I don't feel hate. Yeah. And and, and elsewhere in this little mini-series we're doing on forgiveness, um, we hear from Everett Worthington, who talks about forgiveness uh, having... A decisional element i can decide to forgive somebody and, and continue to decide to forgive somebody but it's also got an emotional dimension and kind of two different types of forgiveness and from what you're saying you keep making that decision mm. and emotionally at times you go back to that dark place you know you still don't have your brother's body you're still not able to give him a funeral um and that must leave a sense of openness in, in the process and, and lack of closure. And yet you're dealing with those emotions and, and pushing back 
the 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 emotions of anger and hatred towards those who are responsible for this as it is as i heard a very bumpy road and those dark nights i i have a lot of sleep problems that health related but there's also times when the the horror of it all still and those nights when i'm not sleeping because of the pain in my leg when your head just goes down a dark dark rabbit hole and you question everything that you do but one of the things i i see so go back you to speak spoken to nearly 120,000 people and the response that we get is truly incredible the response from the students from the teachers that shows up the dam against those bad feelings. And it is, it's quite, it's an amazing journey that we have been on, that I've been on. But I still question. I still question myself, even though I know this is the right route. And there's times when I still feel anger and still feel hate. And I still have to choose not to act or speak in hate. And not everybody makes that decision. Not not everybody finds that process of forgiveness one that they can do. In fact, some people actually say, I, I will never forgive. Mm. I, I can never come to terms with what somebody or some organization has done towards me. Um or I'm just not the kind of person who can forgive. And and obviously you are. <laughs> So what, so what, uh, for somebody who's struggling to make that step, what has it given you? It just, you're still not sleeping well. I'm going to yeah. poke you here, but you're still not sleeping well. You're still fighting the emotions. Yeah. Um, so forgiveness has not suddenly given you complete freedom from all of this. Why should people work hard to forgive? For me, it was very much that weight of hate that weight of um which I'd, i actually had thought i had got rid of because of the work i've been doing with global unity um but i realized yeah. when those two were in court that that i still had hate and that hate weighs you down and that, mm. that's one of the things that i have come to see over the years is Yes, it can be something big like the murder of your brother, but it can also be something like a name calling. Mm -hmm. When somebody says something, does something to you, you know, calls you a name because of the way you look, the way you pray, the way you kiss, whatever. This is a football team that you support. Mm -hmm. And they insult that. They are looking yep. for response back. And if you give them that hate, they are ratified. They are happy because they understand that you are the same as them. However, if you can choose at that point... You know, yes, you can feel hate because they've insulted your faith, your culture, or whatever. 
you can you will feel hate. That's normal. But right at that second, you have a choice. And if you can choose not to react in hate, to walk away. And I say to the students, you know, give the postie in the street a smile. You know, ask the poor girl on the Tesco's till how her day's going. You know, help an old lady with her bags. You know, just give somebody a smile. If you can do that, you make the world a better place. So, so let's talk some more about that because in, in this series, we're talking about forgiveness and reconciliation. Yeah. And uh, Everett Worthington, who talks about the topic elsewhere in the series, he, he explains that you can have one without the other. Hmm. It sounds like for you, I mean, you, you were forgiving and then you went down the reconciliation route with Global Acts of Unity and then you did some more forgiving outside that courtroom in Virginia. So the two are going very much hand in hand. Yeah. But you're on a mission. Like I can see it, and I can yeah. I can read about it. And Global Acts of Unity is your your channel for that mission. Uh, you mentioned 120,000 people that you've you've reached through that organisation. So uh, as we start to wrap up the podcast, tell us a little bit more about Global Acts of Unity. So we started very quickly after the murder of my brother. Um, it was in the late October of 2014. Uh, and I initially, I knew that I had to do something, but I didn't know what. And I spoke at all sorts of different places. And by complete accident, I spoke at a school. And I realized that that was where needed to speak for a number of reasons. First of all, my own youth, when I was 14 so all I wanted to do was join the Air Force and be an aircraft engineer. But I was still an angry young man. And what the thing that we have these days is there are people out there looking for angry young men and women and twisting them and twisting and manipulating them to believe whatever they're, they're in effect grooming them not only for sexual purposes but gang purposes drink prob uh, drug purposes and for radicalization purposes and this has gone on such a massive extent that at some point our youth will face a a choice and what we're trying to do with Global Acts of Unity is to enable critical thinking, to understand that being angry uh, is fine. There's no to even to hate is fine. But acting on hate, speaking on hate is their choice. And if they can choose not to act in hate, they have made the world a better place. It's funny, at every school that I go to, the teachers come up and say, our students are a bit ruly. It could be an inner city slum school. It could be a very posh fee-paying school. It could be a pupil referral unit. And every time we get pin drop silence, they listen to the story. There's often people crying in the audience 
both girls and boys. And the teachers come up and they say, we've never seen our students like that. They say that we average a 98% engagement. And when I'm speaking, I'm actually looking for the people who are not engaged in what I'm saying, and I speak directly to them. We are told our school has become kinder, more understanding after a visit from Global Acts of Unity. And it truly is an honor. Great. Yeah. So I doubt many of the men listening to this podcast will have had such a momentous, maybe public forgiveness story. What have you learned that you would want to pass on to them? The thing that I would like to pass on most is that hatred, hatred acts like a cancer. If you hate something, your ex-wife, another football team, whatever, it doesn't have to be something big like the, the murder of your brother by a terrorist group. Mm. Hatred is very individualistic. Everybody feels hate. However, if you can choose not to speak or act in hate, you have won a battle. And each time that you choose not to act in hate, it grows. And that feeling within you, it, it just makes life kinder. It makes life more colourful. It makes life easier. So my thought I would like to leave you with is can you choose not to act or speak in hate? Mike, we need to wrap up, but it's been a sobering conversation, but also one filled with hope and with grace. Thank you for your humility and your vulnerability. And in a world where it seems more wars and rumours of wars and factions and anger and hatred, than ever before your message of peace is very much a word in season you are having an impact and you are making the world kinder more colorful and easier so from ascend men a big thank you for all that you're doing mike thank you thank you very much indeed That's it for this Ascend Men podcast. If you've enjoyed this content, please share it with a mate. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. Together, we are stronger.